Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Podcast it is your boy, Dr. Mark Liss, coming at you with another episode. Before we get into today, uh, as, always, as always, we hit up the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox for uh, your feedback. Um, here's a joke that actually a, a user sent me at the primarycarepod at gmail.com. doesn't always have to be jokes, people. You know, you can always send articles or topics you want me to go over. But uh, here's the email. Hey, uh, Dr. List, I was over in the uh, store the other day um, shopping with my wife, and I accidentally tripped over a bra the other day. Yeah, it was a booby trap. Oh, so painful. So, so painful, the dad jokes. All right. All right. Uh, let's start the podcast. The primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back, people, pod girls, pod boys. Welcome back, pod girls, pod boys, pod people, to the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, I'm your boy, Dr. Mark List. Uh, today's episode, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I've got the American Family Physician Journal, the AFP Journal. Um, I get this free. I'm not a member of the American Family Physician Group, AAFP. I'm not. Um, but they send me this handy-dandy uh, journal every every week, every other week. I'm not even sure. It shows up uh, every month. I don't know. shows up. This is a September 2021 edition. Um, and there was an article that caught my attention. And a lot of these articles are just kind of, oh, okay, they're just review articles. They're just so-so. I don't really learn a ton from them. Um, I do like some of their poems. their patient-oriented outcome that matters. I do like some of their Cochrane for clinicians, their curbside consultations. I think those are pretty good. Uh, their AFP clinical answers. Their major articles, I'm always kind of just kind of meh, just meh on. Um, but this is a really very interesting topic. And um, the topic is the alcohol withdrawal syndrome, which is not an interesting topic by itself. Um, but the idea of managing alcohol withdrawal syndrome as an outpatient. And I love this topic for a podcast. Um, it makes a pretty good article. I think it makes a better uh, topic as a podcast. And you're going to hear me flip through pages. So sorry in advance. You're going to hear me flip through. Um, and why? Well, because I have had many attendings. I've had many other physicians who basically say my patient's in uh, alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Um, I'm just sending them to the hospital. Just sending them in. And that's always the safe thing, right? And I, I want to be clear on that. It is always safer that when your patient's going through alcohol withdrawal, that they just go into the hospital and be evaluated and be admitted and be watched overnight. Uh, go to a medical facility if you're in a bigger uh, a bigger uh, city. Um, and some pl- entire cities have entire uh, places where these patients can go and sober up and get medication assistance. Um, but a lot of my listeners, a lot of my listeners are in rural communities. And they are the ER. They are the hospital. Um, many of you guys deal with a very low socio socioeconomic people. Um, a lot of people who, if you mentioned, go into the hospital, they can't afford it. They're worried about the cost. Uh, they'd rather, you know, a lot of my patients that um, this is not their first rodeo with withdrawal. They've been through it before. They know that, okay, I'm going to go in and they hate going in. They hate it. They hate how they're treated. They hate the ER. They hate being kind of like 
confined to the hospital and not being able to control of their own issues. A lot of these people have comorbid psychiatric conditions and are like caged animals uh, when it comes to being in the hospital, leaving AMA, feeling like the bad guy, um, you know, whatever people that have had really traumatic experiences with hospital or healthcare professionals, but maybe they just trust you. And this is a really, really interesting article because I have managed patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome as an outpatient. And they've, I, I have selected which ones I do this with. There are some that I do not trust, that have burned me, that have high-risk conditions, that I, I do not feel are appropriate, and I say, I'm sorry, you have to go in. But if you have a good relationship with some of these people, there is nobody better than you to take care of them. You are their primary doc. You know them. You can help them. Uh, you know, especially depending on the situation you're in, you can contact them every day. They can come to the clinic every day, at least stop in to have your nurse lay eyes on them, even if you don't have access to them, um, or at least, you know, somebody can lay eyeballs on them in your clinic. And you can do this as an outpatient for many of these patients. Now, there comes a limit, right? And so this article does a really good job. Um, they use two different scores, basically, to say, okay, how bad is withdrawal? Well, first of all, what is withdrawal? Let's take five seconds to go, right? Uh, let's go through this, right? So DSM-5 criteria for alcohol withdrawal, cessation or reduction in alcohol that has been heavy and prolonged, and then two of the following developing within several hours to a few days after stopping alcohol. Remember that it doesn't just have to be within hours, that it can actually be days later when withdrawal starts for some patients. So number one is autonomic hyperactivity. So sweaty a lot, super high pulse rate greater than 100 beats per minute, um, palpitations, etc. Two, increased hand tremor or shaking. Three, insomnia. Four, nausea slash vomiting. Five, transient hallucinations, whether they're auditory, tactile, or visual, okay, or illusions. Um, six, psychomotor agitation. Number seven, anxiety. Number eight, generalized seizures. Real super bad. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Okay. Um, and then that these have to actually impair. Um, so category C with the DSM-5 is that they actually have to impair functioning. And then D is that they're not attributable to another medical cause. Okay, great. Okay. So um, they talk about in this article, number one, before you make the decision to try to do this in the hospital or try to do this at home, it is always important to know a couple of baseline factors. Okay. Number one, you have to know how severe their withdrawal is. And they use two different scores, okay? Score number one is the CIWA, right? We've used this in the hospital for as long as I've been in medical school. Uh, now it's called the CIWA Alcohol Scale Revised, so the CIWA-HR, according to their um, uh, the, this article. But then they also have the Short Alcohol Withdrawal Scale, the SAWS. And I, uh, the, the SAWS is interesting because it's easier to do. It's very, very, very subjective. And, you know, to a lesser extent, C was also uh, subjective. There's some more stuff that's a, a, a little bit less subjective. But again, it's very subjective. Um, anybody who's done the scale. But you have to assess, right, mild, moderate, severe. Severe, you cannot manage. The risk is too high for complications. The risk is too high. They need to go in, period. You have to tell them that. You can't, that you are setting yourself up for not only catastrophe of yourself, but also for patients, um, fail, failing management, bad things happening. So severe, got to go in. Mild, they actually recommend that if your CWA is less than 10 or your SAWS is less than 12, that you should really just consider not even using uh, benzodiazepines, right? But actually just using things like gabapentin or Tegretol, right? Which both help with the other kind of non-seizure type side effects, right? So um, you can also use beta blockers or clonidine, 
so an alpha and adrenergic ad, an alpha adrenergic agonist like clonidine or metoprolol, atenolol, labetalol, not labetalol, don't use labetalol, atenolol and metoprolol that you can use basically to help with that hypertension or that tachycardia, that high heart rate, uh, some of the tremulous, some of those um, additional kind of um, symptoms, breakthrough symptoms, autonomic symptoms, couldn't think of the word autonomic. Um, so, but, but those are other medicines that you can use and not even use benzos. But the, the key is assessing them and if they are moderate, doing benzodiazepines as an outpatient and they are first line for withdrawal, okay? To prevent basically DTs, seizures slash DTs. They say a SAW score greater than 12, yet not severe. I don't know what that means. Like if they're all severe, I don't know. Um, and and uh, a Berthesiwa from 10 to 18, okay? And this is that time when you have to make a shared decision making with you and your patient where there has to be good reasons why they don't want to go in the hospital, right? Whether it's cost or uh, whether you feel comfortable doing it or they really don't want to go back or there's some, right, something that makes it so you need to be doing this outpatient, okay? Because the easiest thing, especially if you're in a small town and you're rural, just stick them in the hospital. You're the small town doc. You can send orders over there and your nurses in the hospital can just take an eye on it, keep an eye on them, okay? That's always easier. But again, a lot of the people listening to this podcast right now, we've got about 1,500 people per week that listen to this podcast that are, that are healthcare providers. A lot of you guys do not have, you're not the hospital doc. Your, your hospital might be miles and miles away that feels comfortable taking care of these patients. And so it is reasonable in the right situation to do this as an outpatient, okay? They recommend, and I highly recommend, not trying this on anybody that's got weird electrolyte abnormalities, that has got super you know, alcoholic hepatitis, that their AST and ALT are through the absolute roof. Um, if they're in renal failure, don't go down that road. And then they actually don't recommend, uh, they actually don't recommend trying an outpatient therapy for alcohol withdrawal if they have a positive urine drug screen for anything else. Um, I might put a caveat on that. If it's just marijuana or something, I think that's a little bit probably less dangerous. And again, this is not medical advice, but I think, yes, if they are positive for meth or Coke or, you know, heroin or some other opioids, I'd say, oh yeah, let's, um, let's hold the phone here. I, I don't feel like this is a good option because you're going to set yourself up for failure. Um, and so that is something that I don't routinely do, or actually I, I have failed to do in the couple of times where I've done this. Um, I think I know this patient, the, the couple of patients that I've done this on in the past, um, well enough to assume that they're not doing meth, but maybe I'm an idiot and I should have done it anyways. Um, in retrospect, maybe that was some bad decision-making. Uh, but yeah, um, they, they say highly recommend your positive urine drug screen. Um, they actually think that uh, uh, elevated blood alcohol level, obviously if they're still drunk and, and withdrawing, that's a really dangerous patient, um, probably needs to be in the hospital. So basically they say, are they at low risk for developing severe symptoms? Do not meet the level two withdrawal management, um, no psychiatric symptoms, no hallucinations, et cetera, and can still function. Yeah, supportive uh, withdrawal management just with gabapentinoids, maybe Tegretol, um, you know, gabapentin slash Tegretol, carbamazepine if you're not a, a uh, uh, you like to use the generic names, Tegretol is a great option, um, slash sometimes metoprolol, sometimes clonidine based on their symptoms. But in this moderate range is what we're talking about. Um, I like Librium. Valium is also a great choice if you don't like Librium. So uh, chlorodiaz epoxide is Librium. That's why I say Librium instead of chlorodiaz epoxide. Um, and then obviously diazepam, aka Valium. These are much, much, much preferred con uh, compared to short short-acting benzodiazepines. Um, you don't want to go chasing your tail on those. Um, Lorazepam's probably okay, but I actually, um, and that actually supports um, 
longer acting benzos for withdrawal. Um, the dose of Librium, aka chlorodiaz epoxide, I'm just gonna use Librium from now on, thanks. Um, I have always used a single dose of 50 milligrams um, and then one to two tablets as needed every four to six hours and have that patient check in with you or your nurse every day or one of your partners. And if your partners don't feel comfortable managing it, uh, just know that like you might have to get a call on your day off. Um, don't do this if you're going on vacation, if your partners aren't, aren't comfortable with it. Um, but uh, again, uh, this is something that patients can call you. You can call the patient, check in on them, et cetera. Um, Valium, they talk about 10 to 20 milligrams every six to 12 hours and then reduce it to five to 10. Um, I like Librium because it lasts a long time and that 50 seems to last a long time. You can even go a half dose if you need to. Um, and obviously talk with your pharmacist, make sure they're comfortable with it, but talk to the patient. I have had good success. Uh, you know, you can use lorazepam. That is totally fine. Half milligram to one milligram every four to six hours, or sorry, every six to eight hours on a scheduled um, or one milligram every four hours as needed. Uh, or you can consider two milligrams every two hours if moderate symptoms. I think that you end up getting such high doses like with Valium and with Ativan. I've gotten in some high doses, so I, I actually prefer Librium. Um, there was a psychiatrist I worked with in med school who had this big old Librium thing and he did the same Librium dose basically for everybody. He said, I never had trouble with this, but I mean, it was a crazy high dose for everybody. And I think it caused more problems than good. Um, but obviously he was a psychiatrist who had years of experience. So what do I know? I'm an idiot. Um, but you know, this is something that you need to feel comfortable with, but it, it makes me, one of the reasons why I wanted this podcast episode was because I have done this and I've had good success with it. You have to have the right patient. You have to have that shared decision-making. You have to talk about the pros and the cons. You should probably, in the best case, in a couple of these cases I've, I've had, uh, family who's looked after this person, family at the appointment, family who's involved, calling them, checking in on this patient, talking about their symptoms, talking about withdrawal, uh, knowing you know when they need to just cut the cord and go in. And as long as you have a good relationship, and that is primary care, right? If you have a good relationship with this patient and they're not severe and they don't have these high-risk features, that long-acting benzos can be really good at, at home and, and calling them and working over things. Yeah, sometimes it gets tricky over the weekend. Again, if you're, if you're in a small town and you're on call over the weekend um, or you have a partner that you can trust or, you, again, you have, you have good communication between your partners and you don't mind taking phone calls on the weekends or, or on after hours, I think that this is something that we could be doing more often. And... I have talked to so many physicians and, you know, you know, they're like, oh, I have to send a patient in with alcohol withdrawal. They look terrible in the clinic. Again, if they look terrible, if they look severe, that's fine. But I have a lot of people that have just, you know, never done this outpatient. And I was very impressed to see that AFP um, at least had this article. And I wanted to bring it up on this podcast because, guys, I think that this is something that you can do, that you can feel safe doing as long as you and the patient are both on the same page. And again, if you got a sketchy patient with a lot of these alcohol withdrawals are sketchy patients, you can't trust them. You got to do the lab work to make sure they're safe and steady. You got to do a see what, you got to do a, a SAWS, something like that to assess them. So you have some documentation so you can talk about the pros and the cons. And then you've got alternatives other than long acting benzos. You got a bunch of other stuff that you can use. I think that we can be doing this more. I'm super happy to see this in AFP. I know a lot of you in rural communities uh, with a lot of patients um, who have been traumatized or don't want to go to the hospital. This can be something that you can do safely, and we can we can do this as family physicians. So again, this has been Dr. Mark List with Primary Care Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. I really appreciate it. Um, reminder, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Um, thanks, and have a great week. Goodbye.